what issues are going to sway your vote in the next federal election? Um... Climate change. Yeah, education, corruption. Someone that actually cares about the people more than the money. Below the Line, the federal election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Yeah, but well, what's my vote going to do, Bart? It's my first time. Give me some slack. That's a sample of some of the issues first-time voters want to hear about at this election. Yet some of these topics are conspicuously absent from the politicians and media's talking points. On today's episode of Below the Line, we're going to delve into what issues have been largely ignored in this campaign so far. Joining me is Sydney University's political scientist, Professor Annika Gallia and Simon Jackman. I am Andrea Carson from La Trobe University and am filling in for our regular host, John Fain, who is taking a well-earned break. But I assure you he will be rejoining us Friday as the campaign enters its final stretch before polling day. But before we get to our main course, let's look at Sunday night's TV leaders debate. You don't allow debates on anything in do the you, parliament, let alone debates on opposition legislation. Do you as have you, draft as legislation as for you your know, commission? As you know, oppositions no, don't you draft don't. legislation. You can draft legislation do. any day governments, you want. Governments do. No, no. And our legislation, so you've never drafted a legislation members bill ever. It proved to be a ratings winner for Channel 9 with more than 900,000 viewers across the country tuning in. Yet fellow Nine colleague 2GB's Ben Fordham described it as all over the shop. What did you make of it? First to you, Annika, did the format work for you? The questions being fielded by the journalists rather than the public asking the questions as we saw with the first debate in April by Sky News. What, what was your take? Yeah, look, I, I really didn't like it at all, Andrea. Um, it was a format that really didn't produce a, a, a winner and didn't produce much constructive discussion either. I thought limiting the answers to 60 seconds was, wasn't great because we all know that politicians aren't going to give us an answer in 60 seconds and it just it just really pulled both Morrison and Albanese into uh, a battle over trying to get, you know, gotchas out of out of one another. So I don't think it's done really anything to sort of quash this perception that politics is, is combative, that it's argumentative. I don't think it's going to increase either major party's vote. I think, if anything, it's probably done some of the independents and some of those people who are, are saying they're doing politics differently uh, a favour. Simon, do you think there was a gender aspect to it? Yeah, absolutely. For me, the day started, Sunday that is, with, um, I thought, um, a pretty good interview by Allegra Spender on Insiders, um, a political novice uh, who I thought handled the situation quite well and intelligent. Now, it's one-on-one -on -one with David Spears. It wasn't a debate with Dave Sharma, her opponent, liberal opponent. But the day then ended with that spectacle. At one point, there was a two-shot uh, when the leaders were going hard at one another. And I just remember having this flash. Uh, there are two middle-aged white guys carrying a few extra pounds yelling at one another on TV. Um, and it just really was struck by that, by that contrast. So um, the other thing was, um, it was a younger um, woman of colour um, as the um, moderator and um, they just ignored her. Um, she kept trying to bring them back to, to heel. And uh, so that was the other gendered aspect of it, just going right over the top 
Annika, during the week in some of the press conferences, we saw a more feisty um, Anthony Albanese, and we saw that again in the debate. Do you think this is part of a strategy? Look, I think he does have to stand up to Morrison because Morrison, as we know, is a sort of a more seasoned campaigner. He's a more forceful voice, and and Albanese is coming from, you know, not a, a great start in the in the campaigns and great campaigning records. So I can see the logic in that. Look, I can also, you know, from my own perspective, see the logic in in calling out this sort of behaviour and saying I'm not going to get into a shouting match with you. And this goes for both Albanese and Morrison. Um, I think that conducting debates in that way is really it's just sort of. It doesn't put Australian politics into a particularly good light. And, you know, we're going to have more of it later in the week, Andrea. So I'd be really interested in your perspective as our professor of press on why we're going to go through all this again on uh, on Wednesday night. I was going to throw that question to you, Annika, but I'll bring Simon in here because he's going to be a panellist on that third debate planned for tomorrow night. Uh, which starts rather late, I believe, Simon. Have we learnt anything from the Channel 9 format? And are you able to tell us or tease us a bit about what we can expect from 7 tomorrow night, which I believe the debate is going to be after Big Brother? Uh, Are we getting a Big Brother Mark II in the second debate? (laughs) Very good. Um, I think 7 will be looking for a nice lead-in from Big Brother for the ratings. Um, um, I'll be part of the post-show commentary. I won't be actually putting questions to the candidates, uh, uh, the leaders. Uh, well, that's a lost opportunity. Isn't it? I know. But um, um, uh, my understanding is part of the format is that they're going to uh, be either going up live uh, to people in pubs in marginal uh, districts um, around the country. So that'll be fascinating to see that, um, how they pull that off. And, uh, and whether that prompts any more, I think both the, both Seven and the, the leaders themselves will be at pains not to um, have that sort of that spectacle of talking over the top of one another again. And I think Seven will do a few things to try and minimise that, but so too might the leaders. But there's mixed views on that, isn't there? Apart from Ben Fordham, if you hear the other Channel 9 stablemates talk about this, you know, they're talking up the rating success. I see Chris Ullman tweeted about this. Uh, they think it was a, a real contest being able to have the two leaders, you know, get um, a little bit animated with one another. We've got TV that's being produced in a way where it's attracting ratings, it's attracting conflict and opposition. And certainly, you know, politics is about conflict. But at the heart of the um, of the debates is should be a concern for representative democracy, should be a concern for getting policy messages across to electors so they can make a choice. I mean, that's probably an idealised political science view of what elections should be, but I think it's part of the bigger problem of why we're so disenchanted with politics in this country. Well, that's a really nice lead into our main topic for today, which is missing policies or policies that have been absent. But just before I come to that, you asked me about why there's two debates in one week. I'd like to throw that back to you. Who's driving this, the parties or the media? Why is it so essential to have these two debates this week? Well, I mean, I think it's it's it comes all it comes down to the fact that we've well and truly commenced voting. 
So um, parties are assuming that, you know, once an elector makes up their mind, they're going to go out there and vote. So anything they can do to, to sort of saturate the market in terms of getting a viewing audience is really, really important. The other thing that's driving this, I think, is that this is the one of the few areas in political communication and communicating the campaign where the two major parties, Labor and Liberal, have got the advantage. The independents can't participate in these leaders' debates. The minor parties can't participate in these leaders' debates. So, you know, we see a sort of a, a, sort of a coalition or a consensus between the two major parties to grab some exclusive airtime. It, it might work against them after that shouting match. Um, given we've got 11 days left until the final polling day, and as you said, Annika, early voting has now opened and by all accounts uh, it's people are taking up that opportunity. Simon, have we seen enough policy positions from the parties for the public to make an informed choice? And why is the Liberal Party leaving their launch right to the last week? Um, it's been the norm of late for the Libs, at least, and actually Labor too sometimes, to leave the formal launch uh, right to the end. I think it's probably a mistake uh, in, the, in this context. Um, and it goes back to the observation about the debates. The debates are happening, and I think they're happening the way they're happening, not just for ratings from the um, demand side for debates from the networks. But um, but Morrison's behind. Morrison needs to break through. Morrison needs to land some body blows on Albanese. So he's going to say yes to every opportunity he gets. Um, and for that reason, come back to your question about policies, um, I'm a little... Um, today, for instance, uh, as we're recording this, you know, they announced this um, skills ID package, digital skills uh, credentialing, um, kind of picking up, I guess, on some of the COVID apps we had. And the coalition, yeah, yeah, part of me, yeah, the coalition announced that. I, I just think, you know, they've got to fight on things like that because right now they're burdened by their record of incumbency. Right now, things that I think they they thought ex-ante would be positives for them to take into this campaign, economic stewardship, stewardship of national security. Both of those recent news has dented, if not turned those into perhaps on the margin negatives for them. And so, you know, bring on the policy. Not only might it be good uh, for the democratic health of Australia, but it might also actually be good politics for the coalition at this point. Hi. I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation. In the past year, we've published more than 4,000 experts because we believe everyone should have access to quality information, not just a small elite. To become one of the thousands of people who help us produce better journalism, click the donate button on our website or follow the link in the show notes. Many thanks for your support. Now back to the podcast. Annika, in the opener, we heard from some Latrobe students talking about what they wanted to hear about. Climate change was there, um, transparency in government with, uh, in terms of political integrity and having accountability through a, um, a commission. We haven't heard a lot about these things. Um, we've heard about them outside the major parties. What else would you add to the list that we haven't heard much about? Well, I think the the big one for me, thinking back, you know, three, two, three election cycles ago, is immigration. I think that's really interesting because you know we 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 spoke about the ethnic vote 
um, a couple of shows ago. And I suppose we thought, we, were, you know, part of that was, was sort of thinking about the complexity of, of the ethnic vote and not pigeonholing different populations into different policy mm. issues. But we're not seeing, so we're not seeing, you know, we heard on the debate on, um, on Sunday night a little bit again about the boat, boat turnbacks. And I remember that featured in the first debate as well. But immigration is a bigger policy issue than boat turnbacks and asylum seekers. I mean, there's a lot linked, isn't it, Annika, to cost of living, which they're very happy to talk about. Something that's driving the um, low levels of unemployment is that we don't have the borders open to migrants at the moment. Absolutely, yes. So that's a, you know that's a pretty good explanation of why we're not why we're not hearing a, a, about it, and it really points to the fact that it has a, as an issue. It has become incredibly politicised and narrow, dog whistling politics in the last couple of federal elections where it's been invoked. So. Immigration, skilled migration and labour is the big issue that's been missing for me. Every day, it seems, I'm listening to the news and I'm hearing stories about waiting lines at hospitals, uh, particularly outside uh, capital cities, um, and increasingly dire and surprisingly um, appalling, in some cases, stories. Um, and I'm surprised that um, I think aged care was very smart um, by Labor to go there uh, very early in the campaign. But there's an issue I thought we might be, be hearing about, but just on issues, as I said, you know, more policy might be good for the coalition. Having bet so hard on uh, economic stewardship and national security, what's next in the issue agenda? Well, they're issues that belong to their opponents, climate change, integrity. It's very tough at this point um, the message of um, you've got to stick with what you know in these uncertain times. Well, once you discover that, that message isn't kind of working because people don't like the way you've been handling what they know they don't particularly like, to then pivot to a, a, a different set of things to run on when the rest of the issue agenda has been locked up and owned and defined really thoroughly by your opponents. It's really, really hard. And I wonder if regional health or, or health more broadly um, might be fertile ground for both sides of politics in what have we got left um, uh, two weeks? Well, adding to that health portfolio, I'd probably put dental care in there, which is often a policy area that languishes. Yeah, and it's appearing on Greens advertising here in Sydney um, on the Greens um, um, banners around uh, the pre-poll, uh, um, uh, add, add dental to Medicare, vote Greens in the Senate. And mental health. Uh, we know that's one in four people in Australia that can be affected by mental health at various times, and yet I haven't heard a lot about that. No, but we're having a chat. The NDIS conversation has figured prominently, uh, perhaps not with much resolution, I would add. Uh, people are flagging it as something we've got to do better on. But again, um, you know, other than you know, Albanese saying we're going to deal with inefficiencies, you know, you know. Yes, let's just go delete that line item in the budget called waste and fraud. Yeah, if if, if it was only that simple. Um, <laughs> so you know, it's it's there, but nothing specific. Andrea, you're right that yeah. tags mental health, choir mental health. Yeah. yeah. Um, Annika, we heard from some younger voices. We know we've had some really strong enrolments from first time voters in this election, up over eighty five percent, which doesn't sound high in the scheme of things, but it is um, historically. We haven't had a lot directed at younger voters. We know that a third of Australians are renters and a lot of those are 
younger Australians. Um, are you surprised, you know, we've had some policy attention to first home buyers, but the policy cupboard's pretty bare for renters so far? Yeah, it certainly is. Renters and also the other thing that I would probably put into the basket along with renting is casualisation of work. Mm, good one. Good um, that's one. another That's another huge one because, again, you know, we know that, that young people, uh, the policies that affect young people affect all voters. So it's sort of difficult to disentangle young people's issues per se because there is some commonality with other groups. But certainly the messaging and explaining to young people directly how these policies impact them is very, very much missing from this debate. And this is where I think the Labor Party needs to pick up its game because we know that the voting base for the Labor Party, younger voters disproportionately vote for the Greens and for the ALP. And the ALP just hasn't done that messaging work to younger voters. Um, the other thing about the sort of policy domains and issues that are being covered in this campaign for me is that it feels a lot like parties are just tinkering around the edges and not going the hard yards with the bigger substantive issues. So, you know, casualisation I, I mentioned is, is huge and that feeds into a broader debate about the changing nature of work. What happens when our industries wind up? What happens when we get increasing casualisation automation? And all we're seeing from both sides, from the Liberal side is jobs, jobs, jobs. From Labor, something about productivity now. So really, we're not seeing any sort of bigger picture policy statements, just a lot of tinkering with the smaller stuff. Again, that's a surprise, isn't it, Annika? Because if you join the dots, casualisation leads into cost of living and ultimately home ownership. If people have precarious work, uh, it's very hard to build that nest egg that's necessary to get the deposit for a home and it just becomes a, another policy issue further down the track. It sure is. There's a, these, are, these are difficult issues, but, I mean, this is the job of our politicians and our parties to deal with those issues. Simon, are you a little surprised given we've had two years of hearing nothing more on our news bulletins than COVID or COVID-related stories that <laughs> we're suddenly having a bit of a COVID-free zone when it comes to the election campaign? Yeah, that, look, I am. Um, one of the stats I've been trotting out um, of late is that in 2022, year to date, Australia's had more deaths from COVID per capita than the United States. Now that, Can you say that again? That sounds over, incredible. Yes. Um, over calendar year 2022, Australia has reported more deaths, and I should perhaps say with COVID, uh, perhaps not from COVID, but with COVID, on a per capita basis, if you take the different sizes of the countries into account, um, Australia's had a higher um, level of death uh, per capita than the United States, um, which... You know, the talking point uh, for so long through the pandemic was exactly the opposite. It is so much worse in other countries. Um, but something really unusual, and it's not being talked about a lot at all in the context of the campaign, is how we've sort of taken our hands up the steering wheel, it feels a little bit, on, on COVID or The Guardian every, every morning. Um, I signed up for these alerts years ago, uh, at the start of, year, like literally years ago, um, and, and, you know, the, every morning um, they're still tracking and, you know, the numbers are like 30s or 40s a day in Australia. And you scale that up um, to if, if Australia was the same size as the United States, 
and you're running higher than the uh, 300 to 400 to 450 deaths per day that the United States is currently reporting on average. So I think just as a country, we've just decided we're over it. Um, remember the days when a case or two, um, let alone a fatality, but a case or two would send oh, we cities... were watching them go to Bunnings and then going and spending some money at uh, Woolworths and all and, those sorts and of now, things. And now 40 a day every day are dying uh, across Australia and it it does not even get a mention. Um, you've got to dig in the news of being paying special attention to even be aware of that fact. We're just, quote, over it as a nation. Um, and I'm not sure, I think it's worth some retrospection on that, some reflection. Um, how is it that we've gone as a country where we were so freaked out about collectively about about deaths to a world where now um, we don't talk about the fact it, it just does not get on the nightly news let alone even in weekly roundups that uh, over a seven day period you know roughly 250 to 300 if not more um, perhaps pushing even closer to 300 uh, Australians would have passed away over the last seven day period from um, from COVID. You're listening to Below the Line, picking apart the polls, the party spin, and the policies. Below the Line is presented in partnership with La Trobe University and The Conversation. Subscribe, share, and vote Below the Line. To get more information or to get in contact, please see the episode notes. We will keep moving on. Let's look a little bit at what's going on with the polls in this last 11 days. Simon, you're our Professor of Polls. We have not seen the gap narrow as often happens this late in the campaign. Instead, we've seen it widen. Can you talk us through this? Also, I guess I just want to plant the idea we all have been burned by 2019 with the polling. How much can we trust the figures that we're seeing, which I think has got Labor leading 54, 46% on the two party preferred um, and similar figures 53, 47 according to news poll. What's going on here um, and what can our confidence be that we're seeing a true reflection of how Australians are feeling? Yeah, you've nailed, that's about where the poll average sits at the moment, Andrea, and we just got two polls on Sunday night, uh, an Ipsos poll and a news poll by Galaxy um, that um, moved the poll average away uh, from sort of what we've often seen in recent cycles, and that is a slow recovery by the coalition, sometimes back to an election winning position uh, or, a, or a much narrower result than uh, the polls uh, initially showed at the start of the campaign. Now, the average error of a poll average at 10, 11 days out um, is a, typically an underestimation of where the coalition typically lands of, of, of just under two percentage points. And so when I apply that on average correction, and most of that is driven by 2019, by the way, where the polls were, were, were off by a considerable margin. But if I even say uh, the polls are as wrong as they were in 2019, or as wrong as they have been on average over the last five cycles, I take that 54 or 53, pushing 54 for Labor, 
that trims down to 51 and change, even you know closer to 52. So still and, a Labor victory is what you're telling and us. And that's right. So, so even if the polls were as wrong as they were on national two-party preferred, um, it's and it's look and it's a weird election this time with all the independent candidates out there. But it's very hard to see if Labor actually does land at fifty-two or something close to fifty-two two-party preferred. You don't lose, you know. You form government in Australia if you if you get fifty-two percent of the two-party preferred let's, vote. Let's have a closer look at that with our professor of parties. Annika, um, how much do preferences matter? Simon's raised the idea that it is a weird election with the independents. In past podcasts, we've talked about the non-classic contest where you have a three-horse race and it's perhaps not the major parties that, or both major parties that end up in that contest of two. What's ha What happens with preferences? How um, much do we depend on those in most contests? And do people still follow how to vote cards? Mm. Yeah, thanks, Andrea. I've been wanting to get on my soapbox about preferences for the last uh, couple of weeks. And now that uh, we're hearing all of the news about so-and-so doing preference deals with so-and-so, I think it's a great time to demystify some of this stuff. Um, so you asked about the, the importance of preferences. And the first thing for me that I really want to say is that political parties don't determine preferences. Voters determine preferences, okay? So how to vote cards are a party's way of signalling um, where it would like you to preference your vote. And most of the hullabaloo around all of this is really just ideological signalling. Um, parties want to support other parties with similar ideologies. So there is a sort of a charade around the, the whole um, uh, process of doing preference deals, which doesn't really play out in practice because it's up to voters to do that. And research has showed us that around about 40% of people will follow a how to vote card, which leaves a very significant percentage who, who don't. And that's falling, isn't it, Annika? It used to be higher in the past. Yeah, well, I think voters are, I mean, voters are, are, are reasonably discerning. We give them a little bit more credit. We should give them more credit than we have in the past for this. But it also becomes more complex because they're not as rusted on to um, the major political parties as they used to be. Now, because of this, that does make preferences a bit more important because we're seeing a higher percentage of overall the, um, the non-major political party vote. But the overarching factor that comes into play is a party's primary vote. So it's very, it's sort of pretty unlikely if a, if a candidate gets, uh, is in the lead on the primary vote that they'll be overtaken um, in, in terms of preferences. So I think in the last federal election, there were only um, 12 of 151 seats where the candidate who polled uh, first on pre first preference votes uh, didn't come first. And in 10 of those 12 seats, they were actually overtaken by a Labor candidate. Uh, the other two, I think, was um, the two independent seats. So in the bigger scheme of things, preferences don't matter that much for individual seat results. But I want to throw to Simon as well here. Um, <laughs> insights on this? Um, I think they're going to matter hugely in the um, so-called teal seats. So I think it's a, it's a really fascinating facet of, of the Australian electoral system um, that um, we're going to have people going into parliament, uh, potentially, uh, 
Um, and there's nothing wrong with this. Um, I think it's, you know, but it's just worth pointing out that this is an election where I think we could see some people sitting in the parliament on some of the lower uh, primary vote shares that we've seen. Uh, I think from memory, the record is someone getting elected with only 16% uh, first preferences. And we're talking up uh, the lower house here, of yeah, course. Yeah, oh, pardon me, right. You know, preferences, hello, the Senate, but um, but in the house, this is where I think this election is is going to deviate in a few really, I think, could be really important and telling instances, um, Annika, from, I think, your general observation, which is the right one. But I just think we're going to have a few seats this time um, where um, ALP, uh, green to ALP, and then uh, the combination of that to a teal independent um, and, and the coalition candidates are going to starve for preferences and not go much higher than their primary vote share, which could pull up below 40 in some cases, perhaps just breaking 40. And you'll see um, some perhaps Palmer preferences, One Nation preferences come, but it's going to be that that cluster of preference cascading uh, to either an ALP candidate, typically, or or to a, in a few cases to a um, a teal candidate. Uh, it's going to make for some very interesting viewing <laughs> on election night. Just finally, Annika preferences. It's going to slow down the counting potentially. We've said this before. Are you uh, thinking how long it's going to take for us to get an election result? Well, yeah, I mean, it does depend on what Labor ends up polling two-party preferred. But, uh, look, as Simon said, there's going to be a few, quite a few seats where it's going to be very, very tight. Um, and we know that the postal votes flow in over the, the weeks after the election. So a couple of days, I would, I would guess. But, um, you know, I'm prepared for a very long night. <laughs> do tell um, well on that note we're out of time uh, but you've been listening to Below the Line presented by me Andrea Carson at La Trobe University with Professors Annika Gaya and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney Below the Line is a special election podcast brought to you by The Conversation and La Trobe University. Our producers are Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark. And I want to give a special thanks to Nicholas Ferguson from La Trobe's Upstart Live team who gave us those interviews at the beginning of this podcast. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you might also enjoy Michelle Grattan's interviews with political players and experts, also prevented by The Conversation. To listen and subscribe, search Politics with Michelle Bratton on theconversation.com.au or your favourite podcast app. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Mr. Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.